God, as we have been celebrating your power and your might and your love, so now we ask you to use the same power and might and love uh, to come to us and to teach us, to teach us the depths of your wisdom and love, the depths of your love for us at the cross of Christ and the resurrection. We are told in 1 Peter that the angels long to look into these things, into this gospel, into this good news. And so we pray that we see it afresh with new eyes and new hearts. And Lord, I pray for those who do not believe this morning, that their hearts would be softened and that you would be gentle and kind with them and that you would draw them to yourself. Lord, and that we as a church would be a church of the resurrection, a people who are not afraid of death, but lead in this life with gentleness and humility and meekness as Jesus Christ. But now by the Holy Spirit, we must come to us, speak to us, and help us. In Jesus' name, amen. So the first time that I preached this text, John 11, was also my first funeral. And my first funeral was for my brother-in-law. We had just flown into Seattle to visit family and friends. And we received word that he was really, really sick in the hospital. Two days later, at Harborview Hospital in Seattle, he passed away. He was 30 years old. His name was Jason. When the dust settled and arrangements were made, Jason's mom and dad asked if I would officiate. I was, of course, honored, but how could I? I was so young. What would I say? What would I say to this grieving family? How would I deal with my own grief, my own loss? Yes, I was a minister, but now I had to put my money where my mouth was. What did I think about death? What did I think about the afterlife? I came face to face sooner than I wanted with this incredible, horrible, transcendent reality that death exists. That death exists, that it is a certainty, and that all people must account for it. Now, I know this is Easter, we are on the verge of spring. The earth is coming to life. The weather is actually warming. The flowers are beginning to bloom. And so it might sound crazy to you this morning for me to talk about death. But understand this. To see, know, and experience real life, you must first deal with death. John chapter 11 is a famous passage, but it is about this profound and difficult problem. What do we do with death? Martha approaches Jesus, grieving. Jesus, you could have saved my brother. Mary approaches Jesus, grieving. Jesus, you could have saved my brother. And then Jesus looks on them all, all who gathered that day. 
and now to us with compassion and power. And he says, today you will see life, a life that will put death away forever. And friends, there is nothing more Easter than that. Three points this morning, very simple. The problems of death, the promise of life, and the powers of love. The problems with death, the promises of life, and the powers of love. First, the problem, problems of death. The problems of death. I don't know how else to put it, but that death is a problem. That death is a problem. It is a thing in some ways that we do not have an answer for, and yet the thing that we want an answer for. Alan Lightman is a professor of humanities and science at MIT, and he says this, to my mind, it is one of the most profound contradictions of human existence that we long for immortality, indeed fervently believe that something must be unchanging and permanent when all of the evidence in nature argues against it. Stephen Cave is a philosopher at the University of Cambridge. He agrees. He says, on the one hand, our powerful intellects come inexorably to the conclusion that we, like all other living things around us, must one day die. Yet on the other, the one thing that these minds cannot imagine is the very state of non-existence. It is literally inconceivable. Death, therefore, presents itself as both inevitable and impossible. Death is inevitable and impossible. Decades ago, a man wrote Albert Einstein, the famed physicist. This man's young son had died from polio recently. And this man wrote to Albert Einstein, hoping that he could help him, help he could make sense of the son's death. And so he wrote, you can see there on the screen, last summer my 11-year-old son died of polio. He was an unusual child, a lad of great promise who verily thirsted after knowledge so that he could prepare himself for a useful life in the community. His death has shattered the very structure of my existence. My very life has become an almost meaningless void. I have tried during the past months to find comfort that somehow, somewhere, my son lives on in a higher world. And he goes on and he says, but I write to you because you say that, quote, any individual who should survive his physical death is beyond my comprehension. Such notions are for the fears or absurd egoism of feeble souls. He replies, am I to believe that my beautiful darling child has been forever wedded into dust? that there was nothing within him which has defied the grave and transcended the power of death. Now, Einstein actually wrote back. He wrote back and he essentially said that belief in the afterlife is a kind of optical delusion of his consciousness. The striving to free oneself from this delusion is the one issue of true religion. Not to nourish the delusion, but to try to overcome it is the way to reach the attainable measure of peace of mind. The afterlife. Belief in the afterlife. An optical delusion. Something that is not true or real or there. Something that must be taken and moved from our minds. Perhaps he is right. Maybe he is right. 
Maybe we're just all delusional. In other words, any hope for an afterlife is just crazy talk, and we should put it away. It's childish. Or is it possible? Is it possible that how we feel about death, its inevitability, its impossibility, is a clue? Is it possible that how we feel about death is a clue to the true reality of the universe and eternity? That what we actually hope for is real? That what our minds desire is a pointer to something beyond what we see and feel and know? In the last book of the Harry Potter stories, Harry wants to know if all of the things he has experienced, the magic and evil monsters and beautiful friendships and sacrifice were actually true, if they really happened. And he says, tell me one last thing, said Harry. Is it real? Is this real? Or has this been happening inside my head? And Dumbledore beamed at him and said, of course it is happening inside your head, Harry. But why on earth should that mean that it is not real? There is nothing more common or profound as death. It is inevitable. But our heads and our hearts cry out, impossible. So which is it? Now, I don't know what you think about death. I don't know everyone in this room very well, or all of you very well. But I do know what Jesus thought about death. He took death seriously. And we see in John 11 that he deals with it seriously. So just three quick things. Jesus acknowledged death. This is how Jesus acknowledged death. Jesus and the disciples had heard that their friend Lazarus had become sick. We know that story. But then a little while later, Jesus had told them the bad news. He already knew what had happened. Lazarus had died. So verse 11, John 11, 11. Our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I will go to awaken him. The disciples said to him, Lord, if he has fallen asleep, he will recover. Now, Jesus had spoken of his death, but they thought that he meant that he was taking, taking rest and sleep. Then Jesus told them plainly, Lazarus has died, and for your sake, I am glad that I was not there, so that you may believe, but let us go to him. You hear what he just said? He is saying that he could have gone ahead. He could have raced there or even from that very spot saved him, healed him, but he does not. He waits on purpose because Jesus will not let them avoid this problem. Death is real. It is inevitable. We must confront it. And so Jesus acknowledged death. Second, Jesus wept. Jesus wept. Once Jesus and the disciples finally reach where Lazarus had been buried into a tomb, he first encountered Martha, Lazarus' brother, but then Mary. He sees Mary, sweet, passionate Mary. Now they were both grieving, weeping. Everyone around them was grieving, weeping. And this is how he responded when he saw Mary, verse 33. When Jesus saw her weeping and the Jews who had come with her were also weeping, he was deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled. And he said, where have you laid him? They said to him, Lord, come and see. Jesus wept. Jesus wept. Why? Why did Jesus weep? 
We might assume, like everyone else did, if you read verse 36, see how he loved him. So is Jesus weeping over the death of Lazarus? Yes, that is part of it. But he has also known for days that Lazarus was dead. Something different is going on here. When Jesus gets to the place and he sees everyone grieving, that is when he begins to weep. Why? He is weeping because of their pain, their loss, their anguish. As a parent, there is really nothing as bad as seeing your child get hurt, seeing them grieve, especially when you cannot fix it. The best that we can do is mourn with them, enter into their suffering. And so Jesus weeps with them. This is not the way it is supposed to be. His people should never see, experience, or even know death. Leads to this last thing. Jesus snorts at death. You heard me right. He snorts at death. Verse 33. When Jesus saw her weeping, and the Jews who had come with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled. Look at that phrase, greatly troubled. Now, of course, this is a translation of the Greek, and then when you look at the, the word there, greatly troubled means literally, in some places, to snort as would a horse. <laughs> now, Jesus does not literally snort. That's not what I'm saying. It's an expression, a saying. Jesus snorts emotionally. In other words, Jesus is angry. He is furious and enraged. Why? Why is he angry? The brokenness, the disrepair, the sickness and suffering and grief. As a great artist who feels anger at the destruction of their great painting, so Jesus is furious at what has happened to his creation. But what he is primarily furious and angry about is what has happened to the hearts of his people, the hearts of those who were created in his image. He sees what has happened to them, and he rages. Death exists. Why? Because the people have rejected God. Humans have had their hearts corrupted, and now they rebel against him. They have dismissed the one who created them and loves them. And Jesus looks on this, not just with sadness, but with great anger. And friends, that is true love. Rebecca Pippert said this once, but love detests what destroys the beloved. Real love stands against the deception, the lie, the sin that destroys. We understand the mother's anger at the son who chooses heroin or meth or whatever over the love and acceptance of his family. We understand the father who rages at the daughter and runs away from home for a life that she was not meant to live. And so we must also understand the snort, the anger of Jesus. They do not see him as he is. 
They do not see him as he stands there and offers them incomprehensible happiness. They do not see him as he stands there with life. They do not believe him. They have rejected him. They are deaf. And so he snorts. He is angry. But he is not despairing. This is the snort of a champion, of a warrior preparing for battle. Jesus stares death down and is ready to deal it a mortal blow. The answer to death is not to fear it, to be embarrassed by it, to romanticize it, to intellectualize it away. The answer to defeating death is to defeat it, to conquer it. It leads to our second point, the promise of life, the promises of life. By the time Jesus had come and died and had risen from the grave and then ascended it into heaven, the ancient Near East was rippling with excitement and power. Thousands were being converted to Christianity. And they were become Christians at what? At the preaching of the resurrection. The preaching of the resurrection. And the teaching of the resurrection led them to see and deal with death differently than anyone else on earth. Rather than fear it, they began to mock it, to taunt it. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, 55, Oh, death, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? What happened to them? From fear to mocking. And the answer is, of course, that they believed the resurrection. Literally, truly, they believed that Jesus was raised from the dead. Look again at our story and see Jesus' encounter with Martha. Practical, faithful Martha. She is in agony. Her brother has died, but she loves Jesus and she goes to him with love. Listen to their encounter, verse 21. Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But even now, I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give you. And then Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. And Martha said back to him, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. Now listen, she is repeating what the common Jewish teaching was at the time. The resurrection would come at the end of time, at the end of life itself, at the very end of everything. But then Jesus says this, verse 25, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Now, of course, he means that physical death is coming for everyone. We know that. Death is not the same as, though, as, the same as everyone else in the world believes. Because though physical death is coming, what he is saying is that death is not dying. Hear that again. Death for Jesus Christ is not really dying. The second you close your eyes for that last time, the second your body dies, Jesus says that you go on to the next life. To the next life. And the next life, he says, is the good one. The resurrected one. The perfected one. The one that is free from death and anxiety and cancer and pain and grief. To die is to live. And Jesus can say that because he is the resurrection and the life. 
He is saying this to her directly as a gift, as an offering. I will die, but I will be resurrected. And this resurrection will be given to you. That is a promise. That is a beautiful, wonderful, eternal promise. Now, how can we know? How do we know this? It's the second promise. The resurrection of Jesus is like a receipt. How do they say it in Belgium? A facture? Receipt, a facture. So when you're in a store and you go buy something, like a piece of clothing or whatever it is, and you walk out the main doors, and there's those things standing there, and you walk through it, what often happens? The alarms go off, right? And it's as though everything is shouting at you. Everyone, right now, look, this person is trying to steal. It's a shoplifter, a lawbreaker. Sometimes we just blow through and we run. (laughs) Other times we wait and a security guard or a store worker comes to us. And what do we do? What do we do? We have to pull out our receipt if they really need to see it. We pull out our facture. And what does that receipt say? It says that what I have purchased is mine. It's paid in full. That is what the resurrection of Jesus Christ is. It is the great receipt from Jesus for our lives. It is, the, it is the receipt of his resurrection pinned to our souls. And it says this, Jesus has paid in full for our sins. Jesus has paid in full for our lives. And so do you know what you get when you have the resurrection? What you get to do? You get to mock death, to taunt it. Do your best, death. Give it your greatest shot because you are powerless. You have no say or sway over us. We might die, but we will live forever. Last point this morning, the powers of love, the powers of love. Lazarus was dead for four days, scientifically dead spiritually dead. And the hillside mourned. It must have been a chaotic scene. Tens, hundreds of people grieving in front of Lazarus' tomb. And again, the text says that Jesus was deeply moved. But this time he said, have them move the stone away. And then he prays. He looks up to the sky and he says, Father, I pray for power for your power that they may believe. And he cries out. See it in your mind. See it in your soul. Lazarus, come out. Lazarus, come out. So a few years ago, a study was done on smoke detectors, smoke alarms. Scientists wanted to know how well smoke alarms worked on children when the parents were not at home. When they set off the normal smoke alarm, the one that we usually hear that's so annoying, it's very high-pitched, as they track these children in their sleep, only 50% of the children woke up to the sound. 
And it took them nearly five minutes on average to get out of the room. So they probably have been told their whole lives when there's a smoke alarm, it goes off, you need to get up and get outside. And these children didn't. Either they didn't get out fast enough or they did not wake up at all. So the researchers tried something different. Rather than have the alarm sound go off, they would program these same smoke detectors with a voice message. And a voice message from their mothers. And when they studied this, the difference was staggering. At the sound of their mother's voice, whether she was shouting their names or giving them instructions, almost 90% of the children woke up and were out of the room in under 30 seconds. I've seen the test footage. It's amazing. The first night, the regular alarms go off, and the child doesn't move, or he just stands there. But then you see the video of the second alarm going off, the one with the mother speaking. And amazingly, beautifully, the kids, you see them, their eyes open. They are woken. The sound of their parents' voice, they are raised. They are raised. Jesus is full of love and power, and he shouts into the countryside. He shouts into the air. He shouts into the universe. And the creator of heaven and earth rips that life of Lazarus from the clutches of death itself. Lazarus, come out. Friends, Jesus does not just call to Lazarus, but to us as well. We must hear his voice. We must feel his presence. He, with the Father and the Holy Spirit, they are our parent, our Savior. No one else can rouse us. We must hear his voice and feel his heart. Now, we know that later Jesus would cry out again. After this incident where Lazarus is raised, Jesus would cry out again, but this time it would be from a cross. It is finished, he said, and then he died. But then three days later, the shout of the power of God reverberated throughout the cosmos and his son was raised to new life for us. Jesus died for our sins and he rose to give us new life, which means that today on Easter and forever, there is no fear in death. There is only hope in this life and for the life to come. Jesus, our Jesus, is the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in him, though he die, yet he shall live. And everyone who lives and believes in him shall never die. Amen. Believe today. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we ask that, you would he- that we would hear your voice, the same voice that spoke to Lazarus that it would rouse us from our slumber, whether we have not believed or whether our hearts are hard or we do believe that you would bring us to a place of mercy and grace that we would live our lives for you. God, for those who are facing death in whatever manner they are facing it, I pray for them. Bless them 
and keep them and remind them of your truth. For those of us who will face death, and that is everyone in this room, be gracious to us and kind to us. We will grieve, but we must not grieve as those who have no hope. Give us hope. And Lord, we pray this resurrection in Belgium and shape and beyond. May this be the message that rouses a nation, a people. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.